0: Then there were five, by Elizabeth Enright, chapter 15, opus 3. It was the 2nd of October. For weeks now, Randy had been talking about having a picnic at the old wrecked house in the woods. But one Saturday, she and Oliver both had colds, and on the next it rained. Finally, however, the perfect day arrived. Oliver, Mona, Randy, the dogs, and the lunch all went in the Surrey. "'Oliver, with Mona beside him, was allowed to drive. "'It was a tremendous thing. "'He sat there, quiet and intent, eyes straight ahead, brows frowning. "'You would have thought he was guiding a heavy cruiser through a fog. "'Mark and Rush rode ahead, one on Jess, one on Damon. "'They rode bareback, their legs dangling. "'It smells very folly,' said Randy, closing her eyes and sniffing. "'When yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang,' quoted Mona, "'upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang.'" "'By William Shakespeare!' added Oliver, with a loud sigh. "'See, even Oliver's on to you,' giggled Randy. "'But it's not cold, it's warm, and there are still lots of leaves on the boughs, "'though, of course, lots of them are falling, too.'" They kept drifting down with that pensive, aimless flight which is like nothing else in the world. The sunshine seemed to come diminished through a faint film, though there wasn't a cloud anywhere. It was the season of jays and crows. Their harsh voices pierced the silent air, and from everywhere in the woods came the hollow drilling of woodpeckers and the dropping of acorns. Small creatures moved about the floor of the woods noisily. In the dry, crackling ocean of leaves, the running squirrel sounded like a man; the hopping sparrow like a dog. The children unharnessed Lorna Doon and put her with Jess and Damon into an open field. The children unharnessed Lorna Doon and put her with Jess and Damon into an open field to graze. The surrey stood tall and narrow at the roadside, without a horse between its shafts. It looked ridiculous and bereft. Carrying baskets and hampers, the children made their way through the woods, scuffling their feet joyfully in the dry leaves. Isaac and John Doe bounded and sniffed and pretended to be real hunting-dogs. At last they came to the remains of the old house. The tall chimney pointed like a finger at the sky. Among the fallen building-stones, ladies' tobacco had grown tall and flowered in aromatic pearly bouquets. In the grass beneath the shabby apple trees small hard fruit lay scattered. One old skeleton tree, nothing but silver-gray wooden bones, lifted a single living branch to heaven, crowned with leaves, and studded with little fire-red apples, like a pilgrim's staff. The morning dove's nest was an abandoned mound of sticks in the lilac bush. The swift's nests in the chimney were empty, too. "'Presumably the woodchuck still occupied his tunnelled apartment underground. "'No doubt he was sitting there now, still as a stone, "'listening to the footsteps overhead with irritation and foreboding.' "'Rush, Mark, and Randy pointed things out, explaining. "'What a marvellous place!' Mona cried. "'Why didn't you ever bring me here before?' "'She loved all old things—old books, old legends, "'old wrecks of houses such as this.' "'Look, that's the well over there,' Randy said. "'Let's go drop a stone in it. "'It makes a nice lonesome sound.' "'They pushed among scratchy blackberry canes "'and leaned over the side of the well. "'Why, look!' exclaimed Randy. "'Something wonderful has happened.' "'They peered down the mossy funnel, "'and there, a few feet below, "'looking up at them from a cranny between the stones, "'was a clump of fringed gentians.' "'Gosh, and they're hard to find,' Mark said. "'They're kind of rare around here.' "'And the colour of them,' Randy said. "'They must be the exact middle of the colour of blue.' She almost forgot about dropping the stone, but Oliver didn't. He picked up a round pebble, pebble and held it out over the well. Then he let it fall. The sound it made when it met the water pleased him very much. He leaned down to search for another pebble. Mona prowled about, exploring. She examined the building stones, looked up the chimney, and ate one of the little apples. She followed the leaves of Lily of the Valley far into the woods. What a garden to have, thought Mona. Tame, all spilled over into the wild like this. That's what I'd like. Pretend I live here, she thought. Pretend for some reason I'm all alone in the world and have no place to go. All I have is this chimney for a fireplace, and these stones—this, well, this apple orchard— (laughs) Let's read that again. All I have is this chimney for a fireplace, and these stones, this well, this apple orchard. I build the stones into some kind of shelter, of course. I eat apples and nuts and berries and things. But what about winter? Oh, well, pretend there isn't any winter. Pretend it's the tropics. Mona imagined wonderful dresses for herself, all made out of mullion leaves, stitched together, and jackets made of blue-jay feathers, or woven of that very shiny golden kind of grass. All the wild things of the woods would be her friends. Deer would eat from her hand, birds perch on her shoulder. A legend would grow up about her. People would speak of her as the hermit maid, or something like that. Very seldom would human eyes behold her, just now and then, when a hunter or trapper or someone caught a glimpse of her flitting through the forest or running along the treetops like that girl in green mansions. They would bring tales back to their villages about her strangely haunting beauty, her solitary ways, her friendship with the woodland creatures. Mona walked along with her eyes raised to the sky, a faint, bemused smile on her lips. She was being the hermit maid with every fibre of her being. A skyward gaze is all very well, but not unless you are walking on a fairly level surface. Mona's foot came into abrupt contact with one of the building stones, and she suddenly fell flat on her face. She sat up for a moment, hugging her barked shin and stubbed toe, and rocking back and forth in pain and rage. Then, with a deplorable but understandable impulse, she stood up and gave the offending stone a furious shove with her foot. The stone turned over on its side— and disclosed a black rectangle of damp earth, frantic with centipedes. In the very centre of this damp rectangle lay a blue glass bead, half-buried. The bead was large, about the size of a marble, and made of a thick azure glass with bubbles in it. Mona picked it up, wiped it off with the palm of her hand. She couldn't believe her good fortune. The pain, forgotten, departed from her toe and shin." "'It's a sign,' she murmured to herself. "'It definitely is. "'Here it's been lying here all these years, "'maybe fifty or a hundred, and now I find it. "'I'll keep it for a lucky piece.' "'Hey, look, look, kids!' shouted the hermit maid, "'suddenly leaping like a she-goat over the stones and brambles. "'Look what I found! I found a lucky piece!' "'Oliver was still dropping pebbles into the well.' He was lying on top of the round wall which encircled it, and he had a little pile of pebbles beside him. The autumn sun was warm upon his back, and a cool, deep breath came upward from the well. He would drop a stone, listen to its musical plop, and watch the dark circles spread away upon the water and dash in tiny waves against the wall. Each time he could see his reflection break to pieces, and then come together crazily, "'wavering and undulating, at first rapidly, then more and more slowly. "'When the reflection was quite still and whole again, he would drop the next pebble. "'Finally he ran out of pebbles, but he was too lazy to climb down off the wall and look for more, "'and besides he was almost bored with the game. "'He stared down at the stone walls. "'They were richly furred with moss, "'and he could see little sprays of maidenhair fern sticking out of the cracks, "'and a cluster of brown-pointed toadstools.' "'and the beautiful gentians, of course.' "'Oliver gazed at them covetously. "'They aren't so far down,' he thought. "'I bet if I just leaned over, carefully, of course, "'way, way over, like this, and then reached.' "'And the next thing he knew, "'he was wham-banging against the green walls, "'too fast to be hurt, "'and there was a noise somewhere like air squealing out of a balloon, "'and then the ice-dark water closed over his head.' The squealing noise, of course, had been made by himself. The other children, building the fire, unpacking the baskets, had heard it with a sense of terror. Then had come the sound of an enormous splash. No one needed to be told what had happened. Instantly they were beside the well, looking over. There, far below, they saw Oliver's round, wet head. He had just grabbed hold of a projecting stone, and was preparing to open his mouth and let go of a good howl when he looked up, face all crumpled, and saw them. "'Hello,' said Oliver, quickly trying to straighten out his face. The other children's voices came back to them. "'Oh, Oliver, darling, are you sure you aren't dead?' cried Randy idiotically. "'Are you hurt? Isn't it cold? Can you hang on?' They all spoke at once. Oliver said he didn't know if he was hurt or not. His shoulder felt sort of blank, and yes, it was cold, it was awful cold— "'and then he thought he could hold on for a little while. "'But what'll we do? How'll we get him out?' "'yelped Randy, jumping up and down. "'We haven't any ropes or chains to pull him up with.' "'I know,' said Mona, suddenly inspired. "'Mark, you can run the quickest. "'You run down to the Surrey and get Lorna Doone's reins. "'They ought to reach. "'And Mark, wait, bring the blanket, too.' "'The rustle of Mark's flying feet could be heard for a long time. "'The dogs thought he was playing and went bounding after him, "'barking blissfully.' "'Are you okay, Fatso?' inquired Rush anxiously. "'Yes, I guess so,' replied Oliver in a hollow voice, his teeth chattering. "'Listen, Rush, do you think there's any snakes down here?' "'You must be nuts,' said Rush heartily. "'Of course there aren't. How do you think they'd get down and up? Fly?' It seemed hours before Mark's returning rustlings were heard." "'I'm very cold, Mona,' Oliver complained, beginning to cry at last. "'I can't feel my feet, even, and my fingers ache awful.' The only warm thing he could feel was his own tears. Hot, they rolled down his cheek, and he caught each one on his tongue. "'Never mind, dearest. Just hold on a minute more. He'll be here right away. Honestly, he will, darling,' comforted Mona. Randy was crying in sympathy and fear. She was never much good in a crisis, and this time all the mean things she had ever done to Oliver came back to her. The times she had said, No, you can't come with us, you're too little. The times she had put things over on him, played tricks, laughed behind his back, because he was too young to know the difference. Don't you cry, Oliver, sobbed Randy. When we get home I'm going to give you my whole box of pastels that Mrs. Oliphant gave me, and I'll let you use my best paint-box whenever it rains." but Oliver, between crying and shivering, was past replying. Luckily Mark came up, gasping, with the reins just then. Unbuckled, they were long enough to reach Oliver. Mark and Rush and Mona hung far over the well, directing and encouraging. "'Loop the end around your middle, Oliver. Tie it good and tight. Don't mind if it squeezes.' "'I can't,' came the hollow, reverberating wail from down the well. "'My fingers won't work.' They've got to work, shouted Rush. You make em. you just make em. Randy couldn't bear to watch or listen. She held her hands over her ears, shut her eyes, hopped on one foot. Get him up, get him up, get him up, she kept whispering under her breath. And in the end, miraculously, with a great deal of yelping, sweating, hauling, and a lot of banging and scraping for Oliver, they did get him up. "'Dragged him onto the wall, blue with cold, teeth chattering, "'knees and knuckles bleeding. "'Mark and Rush, make a chair of your hands. Carry him down quick. We have to get him home right away.' "'But at this Oliver's mouth opened wide in grief. "'The picnic!' he bawled. "'I want to stay for the picnic.' "'Yes, and what about shock?' said Rush. "'Keep the victim lying down, remember. "'Keep him warm and all that.' After all, who studied first aid? Mona had to admit that he was right. There was a fire blazing in the old fireplace. They set Oliver down in front of it. They undressed him and wrapped him in their warm sweaters and the carriage blanket. They bound up his knees and scraped knuckles with handkerchiefs. They made much of him and told him that he was a brave guy and a swell sport. After a while he stopped shivering and by and by he began taking a personal interest in the hamburgers they were roasting over the fire. He sat up, watching hungrily, the blanket around his shoulders like an Indian brave's. "'I bet Billy Anton never fell down a well,' said Oliver thoughtfully. There were no further mishaps. In fact, it was a good picnic. The hamburgers and everything else tasted delicious. After lunch, Mark and Mona went off exploring— Rush disappeared, and Randy sat beside Oliver and told him a story. Oliver's clothes fluttered about them everywhere. Pants hung from the lilac bush, jersey stretched taut on two sticks, socks and underwear draped over the blackberry canes. Every time Randy paused to draw breath, Oliver would say, Go on! She was a little awed by the story herself. It came and came like a thread off a spool, and it was a wonderful story, all about an unknown volcano near the North Pole, which was so warm that its sides were covered with flowering forests and warm streams, though it rose in the midst of a glacial waste of snow and ice. Marvelous people lived on this mountain, blonde, strong, beautiful. Randy had a good time giving them names. Queen Tatispan, King Tagador, "'and Tatsinda, the heroine. "'Maybe I'd better be a writer, too,' thought Randy as she told the story. "'A ballet dancer, an artist, and a writer. "'I'd like to be a fancy skater, too, if I could ever learn how.' "'Also Tatsinda was a wonderful ice skater,' she said aloud. "'She used to go skating on the Arctic Ocean, on skates made of pure gold. "'The volcano had veins of gold and silver in it, too, you know.' "'She turned and looked at Oliver.' He was suddenly fast asleep. Randy sighed. She remembered that she had promised, in an unguarded moment, to give him her wonderful box of pastels. But here he was, safe and sound, full of hamburger and fast asleep. Was it really, really necessary? She looked down at her brother again, with his still damp hair, the dried milk moustache on his upper lip, the bound-up hands resting pathetically on his chest. "'Yes, yes, it was necessary, Randy knew. "'Oliver was worth all the pastels in the world, "'and all the paint-boxes, too. "'She got up and stretched, "'and wondered where everyone had gone. "'She wandered along the ridge, "'and suddenly came upon Rush, "'sitting bolt upright on a stump, "'with a very strange expression on his face. "'Why, what's the matter? "'Are you sick? "'You did eat an awful lot,' said Randy. "'Please shut up, would you?' said Rush beseechingly. "'I'm thinking.' "'For heaven's sake, why? What about?' "'Opus three, Rush said. "'You mean you're composing?' "'Yes. Please shut up.' "'All right. Only I bet Mozart never looked as if he were going to throw up when he was composing.' "'Randy started to go away. "'Wait a minute, Rand. Have you a piece of paper? "'I've got a pencil, but no paper, and I'm scared I might forget this.' would a paper napkin do? I'll get you one. Sure, anything. Rush sat there waiting and listening to the music in his mind. It was really beginning to come, and by th- and this time, by gum, it really looked as if it might be good. He must seize each little note by the tail as it went flying by. He must catch it, and he would catch it. At four o'clock it was already cool, and they were on their way home. Rush drove the Surrey this time, and Randy rode home on Jess. Oliver, in his newly dried clothes, curled up against Mona. "'Do you think Cuffy will be mad when she hears how I fell down the well? I bet she will, don't you? Don't you, Mona?' "'No, silly. And if she is, it won't be at you. And I don't think she'll be mad, anyway. I think she'll be thankful to have you safe.' "'It was smart of you to think of the rains, Mona,' said Rush, from the front seat. I don't know what we would have done. He felt fond of her, and of his family. In fact, he loved the whole world. He had Opus 3 snared on a paper napkin in his pocket, and Lorna Doone was taking him home to his piano as fast as she knew how. He could hardly wait to hear how those notes would really sound. Randy and Mark were the first ones home, though. Jess and Damon had had a lazy day, and now they took the road at a heavy workhorse gallop. "'Randy's teeth shook in their sockets, sparks flew in front of her eyes, "'and she knew beyond doubt that it was going to hurt her to sit down for several days. "'She admitted none of this to Mark, but she was relieved and happy "'when they turned in at the gate of the four-story mistake. "'Home again,' said Randy, as they rounded the bend and came down the slope. "'She said it as casually as if she had said, "'It's a nice day.' "'Home again,' echoed Mark.' but he felt as though it would be a long time before he was used to those words. Home. Well, that's quite a word in itself if you're not used to it, but to have it followed by again. It was a phrase he was to use hundreds of times from now on, but today it was still new. Home again, repeated Mark. And he said it as solemnly and joyfully as if he had said the word Amen and followed it quickly with the word Hooray! That's the end of the chapter and the end of Then There Were Five by Elizabeth Enright. Uh, And let's see, read for you by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, And I read that last chapter for you on May 2nd, 2013 in San Diego, California. And there is one more book about the Melody family. It's called Spiderweb for Two, and I will be recording that next. See ya!